Welcome to Building the Future, Freedom, Prosperity, and Foreign Policy, a podcast series focused on updating the United States soft power playbook to meet the hopes and aspirations of developing countries because it's in America's interest to do so. I'm Dan Rundy, Senior Vice President at CSIS. There are a lot of global challenges out there, so let's get started. Hello and welcome to another episode of Building the Future. I'm Dan Rundy and I'm joined today by my friend, Dr. Diana Negroponte. Dr. Negroponte is a global fellow at the Wilson Center, focused on the UK's global role following its departure from the EU. Prior to joining the Wilson Center, Dr. Negroponte was a senior fellow at the Brookings Institution, and she was also formerly practiced international trade and aviation law at Paul Hastings, Janofsky, and Walker. We're here today to talk about her new book, Master Negotiator, the role of James A. Baker III at the end of the Cold War. The book is fabulous. I read it cover to cover. You, Hewitt, told me you need to say the book title seven times, so I'm going to repeat it. Master Negotiator, the role of James A. Baker III at the end of the Cold War. It's a fabulous book. The book discusses the important role former Secretary of State James A. Baker III played at the end of the Cold War and how he used his skills to manage the U.S. relationship with the Soviet Union and a series of really important accomplishments. So I'm really grateful that you're joining me today, Dr. Negroponte, to talk about Master Negotiator, the role of James A. Baker III at the end of the Cold War. So thanks for making time to be with me today to talk about your new book. And I, you know, Diana, that I read your other book, Seeking Peace in El Salvador, and it's in my bookshelf back there. I have it there, my feng shui for my Zoom calls so people can see what books I've got. I've got your book proudly in the background there. So this is not your first rodeo in terms of writing books, and you do really well-researched books. This is a very well-researched book. It's well-written. It's easy to follow. It's got a nice narrative, and it's clear to me you have a little bit of familiarity with some of the issues and may have lived through some of these issues in terms of when you lived overseas, and maybe we can talk about that. So why did you write this book? Dan, thank you. Thank you to you, to CSIS, and to Shannon for giving me this opportunity. When I wrote that book about El Salvador, I focused on the end of a 45-year war with the Soviet Union, in which, apart from Cuba in 1961, we did not directly fight each other. But nevertheless, in proxy wars, we fought in Africa, in Latin America, and in other parts of the world. And then it ended, disappeared, came off the front page of newspapers. How? And my book on El Salvador's ending of its 10-year civil war gave me a sense of what the Cuban role was in this. But I knew that the Soviet role was more important. So I looked to what the United States did. I examined the diplomatic history and I found James A. Baker III. Now, I had had the opportunity and honor of meeting him several times. So I went and asked him, Mr. Secretary, can I write your, your biography? No. Okay. I go back and I ask, can I write a slice of your biography? Namely, that time when you were Secretary of State. And when I got the green light, I knew then that I had to plunge myself into international diplomacy for four critical years. The end of 1988 till the end of 1992. 
And that's the story of how I came to write this book. It's fantastic. It's quite well written. And as I said, it's very well researched. You call it master negotiator, the role of James A. Baker III at the end of the Cold War. What were some of the ingredients of James Baker's success? There are four reasons which make Baker exceptional. The first is that as a Houston-trained lawyer, he mastered complex facts. He also saw problems not only from his point of view, but also from the other side's point of view. Whoever was sitting on the other side of the table had goals and had tactics to achieve them. He mastered them too. Then, when having decided upon a course of action, he pursued it relentlessly. And that is where the toughness comes in. Sheer determination to reach the goal that he had desired. And fourth, and finally, which made a difference, he was close, close friends with the president. They were like brothers. And so for over 30 years, they had helped each other through critical, emotional family tragedies and had a relationship which I'm not sure we've seen in any other president and Secretary of State. We may be seeing it now between Tony Blinken and President Biden. But back in history, it's hard to find that same closeness of relationship where Baker or Bush could finish the sentence of the other. That's amazing. It was a people meeting the moment. So as I referenced your book, and I bought and read your other book, Seeking Peace in El Salvador, and you were a phenomenal resource to us at CSIS. We were asked by the Afghan government to take a look at the peace process in El Salvador for lessons learned. And sort of the book on the El Salvador peace process is your book. We went and interviewed, I don't know, probably two dozen people, and you gave us a good steer on sort of three or four folks we needed to talk to. You were on point, really helpful. So you know the Western Hemisphere well. You lived in the Western Hemisphere, in Central America for a time, didn't you? That's right. John, my husband, was assigned as U.S. ambassador to Honduras in 1981. And we were there until 1985 and would travel to Salvador during that time to meet with individuals, including the U.S. embassy. So I had a taste of it then. But my real dive into Salvador was through my church which has a sister parish in the slums of San Salvador. And I went and spent time there. In fact, apart from the pandemic, I would be there once a year. And I came to admire Salvadorians so much. They had a 10-year civil war in a country at that time with only 5 million people. That war decimated that society, not only in those who died and injured, but also in those who emigrated to the United States. We have a large, dynamic Salvadoran community here in the U.S. But that war also, like the Cold War, it came to an end. How? That was the question I was determined to explore. And James A. Baker and his administration were the ones who initiated this change. Because under President Reagan, the focus had been on train, equip, pay the military. It was a military confrontation, but by 1989, it was very clear that that military confrontation was a stalemate. So an alternative had to be found. And Baker determined to make a peace in Central America as the first test 
of relations with Mikhail Gorbachev. Mikhail Gorbachev had talked about ending support for revolutionary wars. He talked about improving relations with the United States. So here, now, Central America was the first test case. Are you serious or not? And that is why Baker and Bush invited in the United Nations to mediate between the Salvadorian government, the close ally of the U.S. government, and the revolutionary Marxist forces, which had been fighting that civil war for over 10 years. And the process by which they reached that point was difficult, prolonged, complex, but reached success in January 1992, when both parties joined together with the United States as witness to sign a peace agreement in the Mexican capital city. It's amazing. Let's talk about Nicaragua for a minute. So there were free and fair elections in Nicaragua. That was in 1990. How the heck did that happen? Right. Good question. How the heck did that happen? Once again, it was a determination that Central America would not be the divisive issue that it had been for over a decade between conservatives and liberal-minded Americans. And one of those countries was Nicaragua, as it is, unfortunately, today. In the case of Nicaragua, Daniel Ortega, still president of Nicaragua today, Daniel Ortega had been determined to be the beachhead for Marxist movements in Central America. In other words, the Bulgarians, the East Germans, through Cuba, sent their military equipment, weapons, radios, to Central America, to Guatemala, to Salvador, through Nicaragua. Now, you may recall that at the end of the Reagan administration, there was a scandal in which the National Security Council and a certain Colonel Oliver North sought to evade the restrictions imposed by Congress and do a little deal, namely let the Israelis sell weapons to Iran and with the income derived from the sale of those weapons pass that revenue to the opponents of Daniel Ortega, the Contras. It was clearly illegal and it got found out. So Baker knew that he couldn't pursue any illegal scheme, but he at the same time had to defang the Nicaraguans led by Daniel Ortega and the Sandinistas. Defang them how? Well, his assistant secretary for Latin America was a man called Bernie Aronson. And Bernie Aronson, having listened to the leadership of Costa Rica and the other Central American countries, said, let the Nicaraguans go to an election. But there were those in the U.S. government said they have an election. Daniel Ortega, the Sandinista leader, wins again. No, says Aronson. If that election is internationally supervised, the real outcome and the real desire of the Nicaraguan people will be heard but we will bring that election forward. We will hold it in February 1990, not on the date in 1991. Bringing it forward and having international observers present at most of the precincts resulted in the defeat of Sandinista Daniel Ortega and the victory for Violeta Chamorro, who was the widow of a slain publisher of the main 
newspaper. And that enabled the Nicaraguan people to leave the totalitarian Marxist tendencies in Nicaragua and to be able to start to live with democratic freedoms and to start a free market economy. It was a wonderful accomplishment and we must put that down to Bernie Aronson as well as his boss, James A. Baker. Fabulous. Iraq invaded Kuwait in the summer of 1990. I remember it very clearly. You remember it very clearly. There was a whole series of decisions that had to be made about how the United States and the West was going to respond to this act. There were sensitivities in the Muslim world. There were issues, cross-cutting issues with the Palestinians, the Soviet Union. What was the Soviet Union going to do? What was France going to do? There was, what about Israel? There are a whole series of complicated issues. You remember all this, and you talk about this in the book. So talk a little bit about the context of this and what was the diplomat. There was a diplomatic coalition that was pulled together, and James A. Baker had a big role in that. On August the 2nd, 1990, Baker is with his colleague, Soviet Foreign Minister Shevardnadze, fishing in the remote part of Siberia. When Baker is told by his staff that the Iraqis are mobilizing on the Kuwaiti border and are likely to invade Kuwait. So knowing that the Soviets had a special relationship with the Iraqi and with the Iraqi leader, Saddam Hussein, Baker turns to Shevardnadze and says, I'm getting these reports. This is serious. I think we ought to stop this. And Shevardnadze replies, ah, no, don't worry. We can tell the Saddam to stop this. We have no intelligence. A few hours later, CNN reports the movement of those troops and their entry into the nation of Kuwait. And the Soviets are obviously have mud on their face from being caught out by CNN and their own intelligence left standing. So Baker and Shevardnadze reach an agreement which is critically important. They agree that they will have a press conference outside Moscow at the airport. And in that press conference, the joint statement will call on the international community to join them, the US and the Soviets, in condemning Saddam Hussein and obliging the international community to bring pressure to bear on Saddam Hussein to withdraw from Kuwait. Now, this was extraordinary because the Arab department in the Soviet foreign ministry was certainly not in favor of this. And Shevardnadze was doing this somewhat on his own because Gorbachev was off on vacation and he said to Shevardnadze, you work it out with the Americans. But that statement at Vunukova airport was in fact the end of the Cold War. And with the Soviets agreeing to work with the United States, it enabled parties who had previously been antagonistic or suspicious or wondering how to handle it to come together on one condition, Israel stays out. Whether there are scuds following on Jerusalem and Tel Aviv, Israel must stay out because there was no way that the Bahrain and the Gulf states and Saudi Arabia could join if Israel was allied with the United States. And that was Secretary Cheney and others who went to Tel Aviv and who persuaded Yitzhak Shamir 
even when the scuds are falling on your own citizens, do not retaliate. Now, we did take a little action to um, remove certain technical aspects in their aircraft so that it was harder for them to recognize enemy and friendly aircraft. But nevertheless, it was the courage of Yitzhak Shamir to say, we'll stick with the Americans, we shall not get involved. And that coalition then was able to bring pressure on Saddam, which he rejected, and stay with the United States when on January the 15th, 1991, US military operations began. It's an amazing story. Let's talk about Germany. If you and I were both around in 1987, and if we had said in 1987 that the two Germanys were going to be reunited by 1991, no one would have seen it, no one would have believed it, and that they would be play, Germany would remain in NATO. So could you talk a little bit about how did a united Germany happen? The achievement of the united Germany and its placement within NATO is truly attributable to President Bush and Secretary of State Baker. Because the British under Margaret Thatcher were not in favor of a strong united Germany. The Soviets certainly didn't want to see a strong Germany so close to their border. And the French president Mitterrand was also himself hesitant about a strong Germany in the heart of Europe. But Baker persuaded both the Brits, the French, and eventually, with much difficulty, the Soviets, that a united Germany would be able to support the Soviets economically and would be constrained from developing its own defense or military capabilities by its placement in NATO. And through very careful and difficult negotiations, Baker persuades Margaret Thatcher to accept Francois Mitterrand grumbling to accept that Chancellor Kohl could unite Germany and that Germany could be a positive force in Europe and be a member of NATO. But you are leading me to a date and a meeting which have remained very controversial. And that is what happened on February the 9th, 1990. It's still debated today, Diana, right? It's, let's agree that this is a live debate as of right today on the 8th of right. April, the date that we're right. doing this call. Right. And the debate is the following. The Russians, former Soviets, now Russians, claim that Baker gave his word and that he broke it. And Baker and my reading of the notes from both the Soviet side and the U.S. side claim that Baker went into that meeting with a very difficult task. He was focused on persuading Gorbachev to accept a united Germany, that is, that the GDR, East Germany, the crown jewel of the industrial Soviet state, would join the West. He was not thinking about Poland or Hungary or Romania or Bulgaria, Czechoslovakia. He was focused on East Germany. That was a big enough task for him. So when he says in that meeting, I commit that NATO will not move one inch further east, it was in connection with East Germany. That was his focus. But of course, subsequent people can look at it and said, hey, well, you talked about one inch further east and look where we are now. Remember that by 1994 and the early 2000s, 
those East European countries having left a dilapidated Warsaw Pact are now members of NATO and the EU. So it is a very controversial meeting. I went into it with great skepticism, but emerged convinced that Baker's focus was on East Germany and he was making a commitment which was limited to East Germany. Well, it still remains uh, something that we're still debating. There's a book called Marshall Plan, Dawn of the Cold War by Ben Steele, the Council of Foreign Relations. And at the end, he talks about rebuilding Europe. And there's sort of an after section that talks about whether or not we should have expanded NATO, because it talks about NATO. NATO and the Marshall Plan are interlinked. And he kind of moved fast forwards and says we shouldn't have expanded NATO beyond a certain place. And this meeting is sort of at the center of this discussion. And the Russians throw it in our face all the time. I don't know if that's a fair characterization of it. It seems that the Russians have a very specific interpretation of that meeting that is sort of the jumping off point for a lot of our disagreements with Russia and Europe. No, you're exaggerating, Dan. I won't accept that. Okay. It's good propaganda. The Russians are pretty good at that. They're very good at that. I agree with that. But let me just give you one example of how far they go. You will remember there was a Prime Minister, Medvedev. Medvedev stood up firmly and said, I remember when that was made and Baker committed to no East European extension. Well, Medvedev was so young, he was still in school. He was still in college. He couldn't hit right. or high school. Right. So, you know, it can be embellished. Let's put it this way. There's a strong propaganda element to the way the Russians use it. I think that's a very, right? Is that a fair statement? Yes. Anyways, but that's, the, that's what they hide behind. Today in Lithuania, the pressure they bring to bear on Lithuanians is typical of what they did during the Soviet period. Let's talk about that, because one of the things that I was struck by in the book was the discussion about the dissolution of the Soviet Union and the breaking apart of the different Soviet republics. And we talked about this in the run up to this conversation. Could you talk about how did Gorbachev, if I can use this term, let the republics go? Because the three Baltic states wanted to leave. Ukraine wanted to leave. I think some of the other republics were kind of more diffident about it. But those, at least those four are the ones that, at least in my recollection, were the ones that held the strongest sense that they wanted to get a divorce. Well, let me start with the Baltic states. The Baltic states had very strong sense of independence and freedoms, particularly the Lithuanians. And beginning back in the 1980s, they were determined to break away from the Soviet Union. But there was a large Russian population in those countries. In fact, in Estonia, it was the majority. And therefore, Moscow had the argument, we have to protect our people. But the innate Lithuanian people said, that is not a reason for us to be under your heel. We are determined to get big independent. Now, this was the dilemma for Washington. They could support independence for Lithuania. And there was a sufficiently large Lithuanian-American community, particularly in Pennsylvania and Chicago, bringing pressure to bear on George H.W. Bush, give our country, the country of our ancestors, independence. But back in Moscow, Gorbachev was under significant pressure from the conservative apparatchiks who were saying, you've gone and given up East Germany. If you now give up the Baltic states, you're out, man. And Washington knew that. So there was a need to balance 
the Lithuanians and the Lithuanian Americans that they supported their need for self-determination, their liberal and their economic desires, while at the same time not upsetting Gorbachev, who would be pushed out. So the way it was handled is that they said, Lithuanian, who had a wonderful president, a pianist, negotiate with Gorbachev. But Gorbachev didn't want to negotiate with them. And nor did the Lithuanians want to negotiate with Moscow. They wanted their independence. So we had one leverage, we being the United States back in Washington at that time. And that was a most favored nation status. And Gorbachev needed that. He needed that in order to be able to trade more easily with Western Europe and the rest of the world. MFN mattered to him, most favored nations. So Bush said, you're coming to Washington for a summit conference and you want most favored nations. Now, I'm not going to be able to give that to you, nor am I going to be able to give you a free trade agreement if you continue to behave like that in the Baltics. So if you could have a meeting with the Baltic leaders, particularly the Lithuanian leaders, I might be able to think of the most favored nation and the free trade agreement. All the while knowing that while the administration could grant a free trade agreement, the Congress would have to ratify it. So they played the game quite effectively of telling Gorbachev, stop abusing, stop invading, stop killing Lithuanians, because if you want that MFN and if you want that free trade agreement, you have to behave there so that we in the United States can offer you this trade concession. And what happened in the end is that we did give the trade agreement. Congress never ratified it. And we did give most favored nations assessment in exchange for something else. And the Lithuanians, finally, together with the Estonians and Latvians, got their independence. It was balance. It was tough bargaining, but it achieved its end. Here's the question. There's an argument to be made that we didn't do enough at the end of the Soviet Union, that we needed a larger Marshall Plan-like package to help respond to the collapse of the former Soviet Union. I think it's easy to sit 30 years later and sit in judgment in my virtual ivory tower, if I can put it that way, because if we recall in 1989, we had just experienced, I don't know, a 45-year Cold War with their Soviet adversaries. And so we were asking our leaders and our society to pivot on sort of a 90-day basis to not see them as an adversary. Now, we had done this before with the Marshall Plan, but actually that actually took a couple of years. There was actually fear of Soviet takeover is what prompted the Marshall Plan the first time. So we didn't have that. And we thought, well, I want my peace dividend. There was a whole discussion about peace dividend. We cut back on the military. We cut back on diplomacy. We cut back on foreign aid. And there was some argument as to why that was. At the same time, we needed to do something in the former Soviet space and the Iron Curtain countries. But there are some economists, including some Russian economists, who would say we didn't do enough. And it may be one of the reasons why people could say, well, their fingers point the who lost Russia. We don't use that term anymore. But there was briefly a discussion in the mid late 90s about who lost Russia. 
What's your reaction to that if I said that? Because I think at that period, James Baker had, there's a discussion about aid to the former Soviet space in your book. And I think the seeds of sort of the thinking is at that in that period of time. I'd welcome your thoughts. The Russian people suffered intense cold and hunger over two Russian winters, 1991 and 1992. And Gorbachev knew that he had to provide his people with food, coal, and housing. But the economy was so badly run, the system was so corrupt that he hadn't got the resources within the Soviet Union. So he turns to the Germans. And Germany and Chancellor Kohl understand that in order to get a united Germany, they would have to give something to Gorbachev. And so the German government succeeds in persuading two bankers to extend credits to Moscow. And in addition to that, they supply both coal and potatoes to the Soviet people. That's the start. The problem is that within seven of those credited, Gorbachev is asked how he used them. And he says, I don't know. I don't know where they went. And that awakens US economists that the Soviet economy is so centrally controlled and corrupt and its system so alien to credits and interests and repayments that any further money was money down a rat hole. And it is the capacity of the Soviet system centrally controlled in which each factory had to meet targets for its production not based on the need for its production, be they widget or ball bearings, or, but on a plan established by bureaucrats in the Goss plan of Moscow. So they were producing to meet bureaucratic needs, and the managers of those factories met those goals by one way or another, but not necessarily free market price derived, because they had no price. They didn't understand price. And we in the West were saying, you have to start pricing your asset. And they said, we don't know how to do price. We know how to meet goals set by Gosplan. So two contradictory economic systems were trying to work it out together. And it was very, very hard. So Graham Allison, a highly respected economist at Harvard, and Grigory Yavlinsky, another highly reputable economist in Moscow, came together to write a plan, the Marshall Plan for the present situation. And they succeeded in persuading a number of people, including Baker's staff. But Baker had a central problem. First, his successor as Treasury Secretary was Nicholas Brady. And Nicholas Brady controlled both U.S. support to the multilateral organizations, namely the IMF, and the request to Congress for financial monies for external use. And Brady said, no way. So Baker had to find the means to support Gorbachev and support the Soviets without doing it through Congress. So he gathered a group of people that he had gathered together for the Iraq war. He went back to the Japanese and the Germans and the Saudis and the Jordanians, and he said, time to pay up. Come to Washington, which they did in January of 1992, and make a commitment. 
And they did. And they came and they made commitments. But the size of monies needed to reform the Soviet economy were way more than what each of those countries and the US could put together. So it was an impossible challenge. And it's very easy, as you started out by saying 30 years later, well, we should have done it after all, otherwise we create a Versailles moment for the Soviets. But the truth is that the Soviets needed a generation to transform from that centrally planned economy to a free market economy. And in the meantime, their economy was hijacked by kleptocrats, oligarchs who stole. And that is the sadness. And so I am reluctant to say who lost Russia. The process of reform was too difficult to be done within a short period of time. And the oligarchs ran off with the gold. Oh, goodness. Now that we know the consequences, it's like I said, it's easy to sit in 30 years later and there were a lot of other things going on at the time. And it was, again, we these had been our adversaries. And as you said, it's hard to justify to the U.S. Congress throwing money down a rat hole. And so that was the other concern was, okay, if we gave this money, we're we going to lose it. So I guess the question is, is how will history judge James A. Baker, Diana? Well, this is a man with a long history. This is a man who also was the decision maker on the 2000 election. And so there are different times in his career which give rise to controversy. But his period as Secretary of State is a period marked by stability. Complex issues faced with great thought and the determination of U.S. leaders not to cry out victory. The determination of U.S. leaders to accept that we, the United States, had won the Cold War, but we were not going to crow about it. These were gentlemen who knew what they had accomplished, but were not going to swagger. And that's the big contribution. It's amazing. I hope we have folks like that again in the future. So do I. Diana, thanks for coming on today. This was tremendous. Thanks for writing the book. I love the book. So I just want to remind everybody the title is called Master Negotiator, the Role of James A. Baker III at the End of the Cold War. I read the book. I love the book. Read the book. Buy the book. And I encourage you all to go out and do this. And I'm going to, when the podcast is posted, I'm going to put it on my LinkedIn. And I can't say enough about this book. It's excellent. Thanks, Diana, for coming on. And congratulations on this wonderful book. If you enjoyed this podcast, check out our larger suite of CSIS podcasts from Into Africa, The Asia Chessboard, China Power, AIDS 2020, The Trade Guys, Smart Women, Smart Power, and more. You can listen to them all on major streaming platforms like iTunes and Spotify. Visit csis.org slash podcasts to see our full catalog 